0: Good morning again. Our sermon text for this morning is Psalm 130. If you could turn with me to Psalm 130. We have been working through the Psalms for some weeks now, some months now, I guess. And uh, we're we're coming to the end of working through the Psalms. We haven't hit every Psalm, but we've tried to hit uh, some selective representative Psalms along the way. So you get a feel for the whole book of Psalms. We come to Psalm 130 this morning. Before I read that... Uh, Let's pray together. Our Father, we come before you this morning to hear from you, to hear your voice speaking to us through the scriptures. Uh, We pray that you would uh, open our hearts and minds by your spirit, that we would have ears to hear and minds to receive what you have to say, hearts to believe it and treasure it, and to rest in your Son, our Savior Jesus. And so we pray that you would pour out your Spirit to that end, uh, that you would be glorified as we hear your Word and are transformed by it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 130. A Song of Ascents. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with Him is plentiful redemption. And He will redeem Israel from all His iniquities. We spend a lot of time telling people that what they suffer is not their fault. And this can be really important, especially people who have been abused. Uh, sometimes they think that they somehow caused their abuse. Sometimes people feel guilty for their own pain. And we want to free people from that notion. If you have been abused or oppressed or, or victimized or persecuted, uh, the other person's sin is never your fault. Or there are those who think that, they're, they, that they are suffering uh, because they don't have enough faith or they didn't pray enough, or they didn't read their Bible enough, or or some other vague moralistic enough. And so we often need to tell people that we live in a fallen, broken world. And it's not all on you. Your suffering is not your fault. Except, of course, when it is. Because sometimes, right, hear me, sometimes, our suffering is our fault. Sometimes we do dumb things and suffer for it. Sometimes we do sinful things and face serious repercussions. Our actions are, are meaningful, and because they are meaningful, they have consequences, right? Actions without any consequences, good or bad, are meaningless. But our actions are meaningful, and therefore, they have an effect in the world. And what do you say to someone whose suffering is their fault? What do you say to the one who who wrecked his car driving drunk and is now paralyzed from the waist down? What do you say to the one who cheated on his wife and ruined his marriage and no longer gets to see his kids? What do you say to the one who embezzled money from his white-collar company, lost his job, did jail time, and now has to flip burgers for minimum wage? What do you say to the one who worshiped the corporate ladder and sought to go straight to the top but ruined all of their relationships in the process and is now on top of that ladder, sad and alone? What do you say to the one who was so self involved or self obsessed that she never got to know her kids and now they are grown and gone and she is filled with regret? You see, sometimes our suffering is our fault. What do you say then? How do you speak grace into that world? Or if that's you, if you're there filled with pain and sorrow and regret, what do you do when you've hit the bottom? What do you do when you feel the effects of sin in your life, your sin in your life, when you are in the depths Well, our psalmist this morning is in the depths. The bottom had fallen out of his life, as Eugene Peterson put it. And in the depths, we see him do five things. And we can and must do the same in life. And you can see them on the back of your bulletin if you want to follow along. We'll look at these five things. One, cry to God. Two, acknowledge your sin. 3 revel in forgiveness 4 wait independence and 5 hope in god so first cry to god verses 1 and 2 again out of the depths i cry to you o lord o lord hear my voice let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy the, the psalmist finds himself in the depths. Now that is likely not a, a subjective depths of depression or depths of despair, but objective, right? The, the depths of trouble. It might have been illness, it might have been enemies, we don't know, but he has hit rock bottom situationally. And what does he do when he hits bottom? He cries out to the Lord. Now, that is nothing new for most of you in this room. Uh, We have been going through the Psalms for some weeks, and crying out to God in trouble has been a regular theme. But here's what I want you to notice this morning. Look at the Psalm uh, as a whole. Where are the requests? What does the psalmist cry out for? He only makes one request, actually, uh, and it's repeated twice in verse 2 hear my voice, let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. What does the psalmist want from God? On the surface, only one thing. He wants God to listen. He wants God's attention. Now, if you had hit bottom, would this be your one request? Don't you think you'd be asking, God, get me out of this? God, save me. God, free me. God, forgive me. God, redeem me. The psalmist says, God, hear me. Now, there's a sentimental way of reading this, and I don't think it's wrong, but maybe just part of the picture. When you're at bottom and when you're in the midst of trouble, you want to know that God is still there. You want to know that God is listening. You want to know that God cares, You want to know that you're not alone, that God has not abandoned you. But I think the psalmist, when he asks God to listen, he's getting at more than that. The psalmist knows something about God that is very important, that God's hearing is his acting. Meaning that when God hears, he will act. You see this in in one of my favorite passages in Scripture in the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 2, which says, during those days... The king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. And God remembered His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. The people groan, the people cry out. God heard, God saw, God knew. And what happens next? The Exodus. Right? The, the whole Exodus happens because, because God hears the cries of his people. Now, in the Exodus story, God not only saves his people from slavery, but also from the sea. You know, as the story goes on, they, they end up at the, the edge of the Red Sea. And they're literally stuck between uh, the, the army of Egypt and the see the Red Sea before them. And God saves them from the sea. Or as Moses puts it in his song in Exodus 15, and as Isaiah puts it in Isaiah 51, Israel was saved out of the depths of the sea. You see, the psalmist can cry out of the depths because he knows that his people have been there before. And God heard their cry and God answered. His cry is not just wishful thinking, but a confident expectation based on the past action of God. Now, of course, as as we reflect on all that God has done, not only in the Exodus, but since the Exodus, we know that a greater Exodus has happened, a greater rescue from a greater depths, which gives us a greater cause to cry out with confidence. Jesus came as true Israel. He faced the depths of God's anger for sin at the cross. He faced the depths of the grave for us, but he entrusted himself to the Father, crying out on the cross, into your hands I commit my spirit. And God heard his cry and rescued him from the depths. And it's really because Jesus rose, we will see again and again as we think through these uh, verses, that we have confidence to cry out. And so when you're in the depths, when you've grown under the weight of a sinful world, when you've grown under the weight of your own sin, don't assume that, that God doesn't care. Don't think that you have to somehow twist His arm or make a deal to get Him to act. Simply cry out to Him and know that when He hears, He acts. Now, I don't know your situation. I I, I don't know your suffering. I don't know your sin. But I do know this, that God hears the cries of His people. And when God hears, God acts. And so whatever you're going through, cry out to God. Specifically, cry out for mercy. Uh, That's what the psalmist says. Uh, Listen to the voice of my pleas for mercy. Now, mercy is simply to, to care for someone in need. It's to provide what you can for the one who cannot provide for himself. The psalmist looks for God to do for him what he cannot do for himself. And that really in two ways. The psalmist wants God to remove the guilt of his sin, and the psalmist wants God to remove the consequences of his sin. Which takes us to our next point. One, cry to God. Two, acknowledge your sin. Verses three and four say this If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. It's verse 3 that really clues us into the fact that the psalmist is not suffering unjustly. And that is often the case in the psalms, right? The writer faces some enemy who persecutes and pursues and oppresses, not for any fault of the psalmist. And the psalmist will say in those situations, Judge me according to my righteousness. Not because the psalmist is sinless, but because in this situation, the psalmist is unjustly persecuted. But that is not the case here. The psalmist's plea for mercy is immediately followed by a recognition of his sin. The psalmist knows that his sin, at least in part, has brought upon him this trouble. Sin makes miserable. You know, we always think that sin will make us happy, and that's why we sin, But the pleasure never satisfies and never lasts and the momentary pleasure of sin brings a lifetime of consequences both for this life and the life to come. Sin makes miserable and the question is, will we stay there? Will we stay in our misery? One of the reasons we often stay at rock bottom once we've hit it is we refuse to admit our role in getting there. We make excuses and we blame and we point fingers and we reject all responsibility It's hard to admit when we've just gotten beat up by life that maybe maybe some of that was my fault. Maybe some of that could have been avoided. Now again, I'm not suggesting that your your cancer is your fault or I'm not suggesting that your abuse was your fault. Don't hear that. But our sin does have consequences. The Bible puts it this way, you reap what you sow. Uh, Paul says in Galatians 6, do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Now, Paul is not teaching a works-based salvation here. Just look at the entire letter of Galatians leading up to that point. But he is saying your actions will have consequences. And my question is, when you taste the bitter consequences of life, Live a life lived contrary to God's design, will you remain too stubborn to acknowledge that and live life blaming everyone around you for your troubles? Or will you admit your failures and cry out for mercy? Maybe you're thinking, but but I'm not really that bad of a person. I mean, okay, that's fine. But the truth is, whatever your standard When we're honest with ourselves, we all know that we we fail to live up even to our own standards. How much more when we look at the perfection of God the Father? Jesus himself pretty boldly declared that anger and murder come from the same root, and lust and adultery likewise. There is no one righteous. Once we get below the surface of our respectable lives, we find all manner of jealousy and covetousness and pride and deceit and anger and lust lurking in the dark corners of our hearts. But you know, sometimes, even when we get a glimpse below the surface, we're still afraid to admit what we find there. we built our reputations and our self-image on what we tell ourselves about ourselves. And to admit what we find in the dark is scary. You, you want to feel good about yourself. And, and, and you might think, I want you to feel bad, but that, actually that's not true. I want you to know joy. What the psalmist is looking for and what will encourage you to be honest and what will bring you joy is what we come to next. So cry to God, acknowledge your sin, and revel in forgiveness. You know, when life begins to punch back, or worse, we, we hit bottom, if we're, if we're willing to admit, yeah, okay, that, that was on me, our next tendency is just to to buckle down and try harder. Somehow we think that the very self-will that got us into this mess will also get us out. And so we make resolutions and we double our efforts and we promise to change. But the psalmist doesn't go to to resolution, he goes to confession. And actually the first sign of confession was really back in verse 2. When he said, let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. Now, uh, while mercy can refer to any kind of help for the needy here, it seems to include forgiveness. And how do we know that? Well, besides verse three, where he specifically starts talking about sin. uh, the, The psalmist, when he says, let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy, is actually echoing the prayer of Solomon that we read earlier. It's a prayer that would have been familiar to every Israelite as Solomon prayed over the dedication of the temple. Solomon prayed this. He said, If if they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you are angry with them, and give them to an enemy the depths. Yet if they turn their heart and repent and plead with you, saying, We have sinned. If they repent and pray toward you, toward the house that I have built for your name, Then hear from heaven, your dwelling place, their prayer and their pleas and maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you. Now, oh my God, let your ears be open, let your eyes be open and your ears attentive to the prayer of this place. And God responded to Solomon's prayer in the next chapter. God said to Solomon, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven. And will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place, that is in the temple. And so the psalmist banks on God's promise that his ears will be attentive when he cries out for mercy from the depths. And then he follows up his pleas for mercy with a recognition that if God marks iniquities, he could not stand. And not just him, of course, but if God marked iniquities, that is, if God were to tally up sins, your sins and my sins, and dole out punishments accordingly, not one of us could stand before the throne of God. That's what Psalm chapter 1, verse 5 says, the wicked will not stand in the judgment. If God tallies up our sins, we are in serious trouble, but we have God's promise to those who pray. Now, there's only one problem. That, that promise to Solomon was to hear those who pray in or toward the temple. The promise to Solomon was to hear those who pray in or toward the temple. That was where God met with his people. But the temple has been destroyed multiple times, actually, since Solomon's day. And today there is no physical temple in Jerusalem. But we have better promises. God has promised to forgive those, had promised to forgive those who prayed toward the temple, but in the New Testament, Jesus himself is the temple. He is God with us. And we now pray to the Father, not through a building, but through a person. Not God in the temple, but God incarnate. And as we come to the Father through the Son, we have this promise in 1 John Chapter one, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, that at the very least means not hiding our sin, but acknowledging it, confessing it. We have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so we pray toward the temple, toward Jesus. Because in Jesus, God meets with us, and in Jesus, God forgives our sins. Now, verse 4, then, is one of, I think, one of the greatest verses in the Bible, as far as I'm concerned. It it, it teaches, it's it's counterintuitive. You read verse 4, and you think, well, that doesn't make any sense. But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. And our first thought is, no, no, with God there is forgiveness, so that we don't fear. But that's not what the psalmist says. With you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. And what this psalm uh, teaches there is that forgiveness is the foundation of all true religion. The fear of the Lord is the summary of true religion in the Old Testament. To fear the Lord is to know him, to acknowledge him, to live for him. It's for your life to revolve around God's presence, to have a sense of his holiness and majesty and grandeur. As many have put it, right, that kind of fear, it's not the fear of a slave, it's not the fear of punishment. John tells us that perfect love casts out that kind of fear. But some have have said it's the fear of a son, or or better, it's the respect and the awe and the wonder that God deserves. Psalm 130 verse 4 tells us that, that this wonder, this awe comes from forgiveness. And what that means is, if you don't know the forgiveness of of sins, your religion, according to the psalmist, is at best immature, more likely a sham, and quite possibly hypocrisy. Religion cannot be based on following the rules, because you can't. You might make a good show of it, but it's just that, a show. God wants your heart and the obedience that flows from the joy of forgiveness. Look, John says, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Do you know that? Deep down in your bones, do do you know that God forgives sin? If you have confessed your sin, you are forgiven. Not when you get your act together, not when you start following the rules, not if you come to church and read your Bible. Now, I hope you'll do all those things, but they don't do anything for your forgiveness. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do you want to know the the power and the wonder and the grandeur and the holiness of God? Do Do you want to live for Him and serve Him with heart and life? You must know that you are forgiven in Christ. And so look at the cross. Right? See God's holy anger for sin such that He would punish His own Son as He takes on the sin of the world. See God's holy mercy for sinners as He lays our sin on His Son that we might find forgiveness in new life. Because that alone will generate in you the fear of the Lord. That will cause you to tremble at God's Word with joy and serve Him with gladness. So cry to God. Acknowledge your sin. Revel in the forgiveness that we have in the cross. And four, wait independence. Our psalmist has confidently declared God's forgiving mercy. But he doesn't make the mistake that we often make, which is if God loves me, why is my life still so hard? I mean, if He has forgiven me for my sins, why do I still suffer for them? Jesus has taken the punishment for our sins on the cross, but we often still taste their bitter consequences. If I steal, I go to jail. If I commit adultery, I lose my family. If I live an angry life, I ruin my relationships. Even if your suffering is not your fault, all suffering stems from human sin and rebellion. You know, one of the great tragedies of life is we can easily make a mess out of things, but we can't always put it back together. Uh, We had one son when he was about two years old. He learned to climb out of the crib, even, of course, when he should have been sleeping. And he could climb out really well, but he couldn't get back in. Some of us, when we come to know God's forgiving grace, we we want God to remove all the consequences, to to wave a magic wand and make everything better right now. There's a sense in which I get that, right? God has has promised to make all things new. He has promised to make all things new. And so we think, okay, get on with it. And then when that doesn't happen, we, we try to force life to get right in our timing. And maybe we wrongly think, well, if I'm really a Christian, I shouldn't have these problems. If I only had enough faith, everything would be good. And so we manipulate life to to be good, or at least look good, so we can feel like we are good Christian people, or worse, so so other people will think that we are good Christian people. Because look, our life is all together. But what we have forgotten is that the grave comes before the resurrection, and the cross before the crown, And we here and now have been called to walk in the footsteps of our Savior, to take up our cross and follow Jesus. Which means, even as we belong to the one who died for sin and rose to new life, we simultaneously are forgiven for our sins and suffer in a sinful and broken world as we wait for his return and the renewal of all things. Now is a time of of trial and difficulty. So the psalmist knows that he is forgiven, but he's still in the depths. And so he says in verses five and six, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word, I hope my soul waits for the Lord more than watchman for the morning, more than watchman for the morning. You see, he can wait for God to make all things new, for God to put things right, because he knows that God is for him. He he can wait because he knows that he's forgiven. He can wait because he is sure as the watchman that the morning will dawn, his troubles will dissipate like the morning mist, and the sun will rise. And as another psalm says, joy comes with the morning. But for now he waits. Or let me put it, Differently, plainly, if you belong to Jesus by faith, if you trust in His work on your behalf, whatever your struggles, whatever your trials, whatever difficulty you're in, whether it's self inflicted or not, one day your troubles will disappear. One day it will all be made new. There will be no guilt trips, no I told you sos, no what were you thinkings. Our Father will simply wipe away our tears. But for now, we wait depending on him to put things right in his timing. So cry to God. Acknowledge your sin. Revel in forgiveness and wait in dependence on God's promises, knowing that he will make all things new in his timing. Lastly, hope in God. Our temptation as we wait is to become disillusioned is to wonder if God has forgotten his promises. Is to start to look elsewhere. We begin to hope in the structures and the powers and the pleasures of this age. We begin to think, well, I can make my life better through politics or social action, or I can look to technology to relieve the effects of sin in the world. I can look to money to make life better. I can look to sex to at least feel good for a moment. I can throw myself into my job or my family in the hopes of securing happiness, or I can do penance. I can try to make up for my sins in the hopes that God will take notice, and then maybe he'll lighten the load of my troubles and trials. The psalmist says, O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with Him there is plentiful redemption. And He will redeem Israel from all His iniquities. God's love does not waver. It's not up and down. It doesn't rise and fall with whether you've had your devotions today. It doesn't rise and fall with your sanctification. His love is steadfast and devoted and unwavering. And His redemption out of sin is plentiful. There is no sin you have committed that Christ's blood cannot cover. There is no sin that cannot be forgiven in Jesus' name. The psalm says He will redeem Israel from all His iniquities. Not not some, not most, but all. And so we wait for Him. We hope in Him. And yet, in one sense, the psalmist's he will has become a he has. First Peter put it this way Know that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. Christ has redeemed you with his blood. Not will, but has. The redemption of Israel has come. It's it's true. We do not yet experience the full effects of that redemption. We are already forgiven, but all things are not yet new. And so we wait, hoping in what God will do. It's not that we can't use technology or participate in politics or make money or pursue a job or a family and so on. But it is that we can't hope in these things. It's not that we can't seek to make the world a better place in the here and now. By all means, please do so. But we hope in God, knowing that whether we succeed or fail in mitigating the effects of the fall in the moment, Christ has dealt with them decisively at the cross and will remove them on the last day. That is our hope, that then and there, our Savior will come and all things will be made new. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the gift of your Son. We thank you for the redemption that we have in Jesus. We thank you for the forgiveness of sins. And we thank you for the hope of the resurrection. We thank you for the hope of his return. We thank you for the hope of all things made new and every tear wiped away. Father, help us to revel in our forgiveness and to wait in hope for what you will do.